this week on the Backtable Podcast. You know, I mean, I think as much information as we have, as much literature is out there, we really don't know how much cement do we really need and in what patient. You know, we know if you get kind of a blocky, chopped, squared off, dense bone, you tend to have an adjacent increasing fracture. If you kind of get that spongy kind of describe, you know, flow in vertebroplasty pattern, they tend not to be as stiff and sore, you know, and then I think it's a matter of what do we do? So for me, the reduction has been better with the Kyphon assist. And the good point is I can get that flow into the other parts of the vertebrae as a vertebroplasty by rotating my Kyphon assist or scoop cannula, as I call it, to get the other areas. So I can control the flow into the vertebrae. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. Today's episode is sponsored by Kyphon by Medtronic. Kyphon balloon kyphoplasty has been well-reported in the literature over its 20-plus year clinical history, treating more than 1.6 million vertebral compression fractures worldwide including comparing bilateral to unilateral procedures. Bilateral kyphoplasty has been shown to offer improvements in vertebral body height restoration over unilateral kyphoplasty, and Kyphon balloon kyphoplasty has demonstrated in large randomized control trials to give patients pain relief, better function, and improved quality of life versus non-surgical management measures. Visit medtronic.com slash kyphoplasty to learn more. This is Michael Barraz returning as your host. Uh, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Tom Andrushak, an orthopedic spine surgeon with Consulting Orthopedic Associates in Toledo, Ohio. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, vertebral augmentation, um, particularly um, performing vertebral augmentation from either unipedicular or bipedicular access. Dr. Andrushak, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're in Toledo, right? Yes, I am. Metro Toledo area. How's the weather there today? It's actually bright and sunny, but chilly. Not working? Not today. Good. So you're actually the second spine surgeon in a row that I've had on the podcast, which is kind of unusual. Uh, last episode I hosted was with uh, a spine surgeon talking about radiofrequency ablation for spine metastases, and that was a neurosurgeon, which we all know is not as good. So uh, you know, I'm glad to have the the more the better type of spine surgeon on with me today. Uh, so thank you for sharing your your time and superior expertise. Oh, not a problem. You know, we all have to learn to play in the <laughs> sandbox together. We all do the same thing, so we all have a little bit different things to add. That's right. And, you know, that's, that's kind of one of our things at Backtable. You know, we're about collaboration rather than competition. And, and you know, we really value having physicians of different specialties, uh, you know, than us. You know, we're mostly interventional radiologists here. I think we really gain a lot from getting perspective from different specialties. And we really appreciate having yours on here. So, Tom, if you don't mind, uh, tell me what your practice is like, you know, what you do, what your your group is like and uh, what type of hospital or outpatient setting, where, you know, where do you work? So I am in the Toledo metro area. I work at a major level one trauma center called St. Vincent Mercy, and I'm a solo practitioner. I don't have a group and I work with residents at the hospital. I do cover two smaller community hospitals and 90 some percent is spine surgery. The rest basic general orthopedics and been doing kyphoplasties for 21 years. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, is that a large part of your practice? You're doing a lot of them? I do probably 200 to 250 a year, depending on the- That is a lot. Times. Yep. 
are there other physicians who, uh, who do these at your institution? Yeah, it's a combination, as you had stated, of neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, pain management, interventional radiologists. The training in the beginning, as you kind of remember, they trained mostly for kyphoplasty, orthopedic surgeons and neurosurgeons, thinking this was a reduction of fractures. So therefore it was, mm -hmm. you know, specifically a surgeon-based practice. But interventional radiologists were the smart ones and did the vertebroplasties, learned the technique. And then of course the orthopedist kind of expanded on it just to try to up at one and, you know, try to get more of a reduction. Yeah, that, that's actually how I, I started doing them um, by working with spine surgeons who would have us do them for prevention of proximal junctional kyphosis after, after fusion. And that's actually how I learned was, you know, working with them and then just kind of expanding my practice from there. So your institution, how do these patients, you know, with vertebral compression fractures, how do they get triaged? How do they end up, you know, getting you involved? So my practice has changed remarkably as we all have during the COVID time. But the majority of my referrals come from inpatient referrals, patients who've had pain symptoms, go to the emergency room, get triaged, either admitted or sent to the office. Uh, some are sent primarily by the family practice doc based on their continued pain over time. And, and that's probably the majority of the practice that I see over the last two years, as we all have, those patients are sent outpatient and, you know, come to the office and this period of time, it's probably presenting more six to eight weeks after their injury. Whereas previously yeah. I really saw those people within the first week or two. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm in a job, I work in Louisiana and I've been here for about a year. And before I moved here, I moved like in the middle of the, the first wave of the, the pandemic. And before that, I was actually, you know, seeing a lot of these as inpatients and, and we would treat some of them while they were still there. You know, we had a basically a system we worked out with the ER, they would get them admitted for the night and we would treat them the next day. And, and now, you know, the majority of ours are, are outpatient as well. But yeah, that, that's really interesting. We are, we're also seeing a higher proportion of these uh, later on than we had, you know, a year or two before. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. I've noticed that I don't get the reductions I used to get. I mm -hmm. don't get the lift or the height and patients tend to have a few more recurrent fractures. So, that brings up an important point, you know, it, about the timing of the fracture in, in terms of treatment. When you're working these, these patients up, I mean, ideally we want to get them in the acute phase, but I mean, how long do you consider too long after an injury to, to forgo treatment? Uh, it's, that's an interesting question because really there is no too long of a treatment. As long as you yeah. have edema, you know, MRI scan or stir image, uh -huh. if you have activity in a bone scan or you see fracture cleft CT, I've treated patients a year, almost a year and a half out that still have micromotion and fracture. Yeah. We, we kind of do the same. We, we basically, you know, unless we know for sure it's, it's very acute, you know, I mean, if it's, you know, somebody comes in with trauma or, you know, an acute injury, we'll, we'll be fine with a CT, but for pretty much everybody else, we're requiring an MRI. Is that the same for you? If possible. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like the cardiologists in my area have given everyone pacemakers, defibrillators, or now bladder <laughs> stimulators. So we're kind of messed up on getting an MRI, but truly MRI is the gold standard. Yes. How are you managing that when you can't get an MRI in terms of triage? I mean, do you go by exam, bone scan? Combination of both. Yeah. I think as an orthopedic surgeon, my first line of evaluation is a standing upright x-ray. Everyone says, yeah. really? Why standing? Well, <laughs> I, I've seen a lot of fractures, probably one out of 10 had CT 
had imaging at the ER, didn't have a standing x-ray. I see them normally within a week from the ER, many times within a two, three days, and you get a standing upright x-ray and they suddenly have a collapse. I've seen a complete plane. No kidding. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredible the difference. I, I've never even thought to order them as, uh, as a standing film for these patients. That's really, that's useful information. Yeah. I, I mean, commonly also as examples, spondylolisthesis is missed. You get an MRI, you get a plain yeah. x-ray and you stand the patient up, they have a grade one slip. So same as with fractures. So Tom, in terms of treating these patients, are, are you doing exclusively kyphoplasty or do you also perform vertebroplasty or, or other forms of vertebral augmentation for compression fractures? Probably 90 95% are vertebral augmentation. I do do a vertebroplasty if I do a big degenerative spine scoliosis to offset, you know, the proximal junctional kyphosis and my proximal screws. Yeah. If I see a older, real chronic type fracture, mild edema, I know I'm not going to get a reduction. So to me, a vertebroplasty sure. is great for that. Or if they have one of those segmental fractures between a fixed level that little bit of edema in the anterior edge, which I think is a common missed thing, not read by, you know, some of the colleagues, I will put a vertebroplasty in there to stabilize it. Okay. And you do that at the same time as, as a kyphoplasty for other levels, or you occasionally just bring that patient in and treat, uh, the vertebroplasty at that level? The same time. Okay. Yeah. I'm with you. It's, it's interesting. And in my last job, I was at least 90% kyphoplasty. Uh, I would occasionally as you said, for like an older looking fracture. And then for me, sometimes for cheaper plane where I'm, I'm nervous about inflating a balloon there, uh, I'll sometimes just go with cement. But, you know, I joined a, a new practice here and uh, it was a group that did exclusively vertebroplasty. Um, there was a guy, you know, didn't really believe in using the balloons. And so that was, that was a battle I had uh, in my first year here. I, I still am a believer. You know, one of the things we brought you on to talk about today was doing these from uniparticular or biparticular access. I mean, for me, that wasn't really an option until like five years ago. But it's interesting to note that, you know, I was talking about the guys in my group. They actually do all of their vertebroplasties from uniparticular access, but without curved needles. They just, uh, you know, rotate the eyes such that they can get the needle directly in the middle. And, and that's how they do all of them. For you, roughly what proportion of uh, Compression fractures are you treating from unipedicular access uh, compared to bipedicular? It's probably 20%. A lot of it is random luck. I'm planning bipedicular and my needle catheter balloon is in the midpoint and it's like, hey, this is great. Reduce the fracture, got my void. I'm good with it. So it's probably 20%. Those that have multi-level fractures, such as in the myeloma patients, the uh -huh. primary steroid-induced osteoporosis from secondary, you know, those definitely multi-levels just for cost savings. I'll go unipedicular. Okay. Do you ever use any of the curved needles to get across? I don't. I'd bend my balloon catheter. Actually, if you make a little curve in the catheter, you get to your I've never tried that. Yeah. It actually works pretty good. Do you have to put a cannula or anything out past her to get the balloon? Or I mean, I guess for softer tubal bodies, you may not have to. Right. Usually for those that have clefts, you know, they have the, you know, what's termed Cummel's disease, the osteonecrosis. Yeah. Those are great. It curves right along the front and really inflates it. Excellent. So, you know, you said cost savings, uh, you know, are there any other benefits to doing it from unipedicular access rather than bipedicular? I mean, that has been debated, you know, the studies and I actually kind right. of looked up a lot of the stuff to see. Theoretically, according to all the meta-analysis, not really. You decrease the cement fill, you decrease the usage of the cement. You can get a volume less normally with unipedicular. But it's a cost in the time. 
and then less radiation possibly. Yeah. And, you know, I guess theoretically just going from one side, I guess slightly less invasive. I mean, it's still the same procedure pretty much. You know, I, I used to use the curved balloons uh, from unipedicular access and, and get across and I, I and the curved cannulas and, and I did have good results from that. I, I did, found that there was a learning curve with that, you know, in terms of getting out there and covering as much of the vertebral body as I could. But the argument that was made to me for why you should stick with biparticular access was just, you know, you get superior cement fill. I don't know. What's your take on that? Well, as an orthopedic surgeon in training of fractures, that's how I base it. Yeah. You know, I mean, fracture principles based on the AO principles is, you know, you've got to have fracture fixation anatomically. Then you have to make sure that you do it as a soft tissue sparing approach, which vertebroplasty and vertebral augmentation is. You want to mobilize the patient safely, but you also want that stability. The question is absolute stability or relative stability. And that goes back to, again, difference between colleagues and orthopedic and neurosurgeons. We believe in the bone, be the bone. We own the bone. So yeah, fracture healing is different. You know, you have your, whether it's the spine, long bone fracture, you still heal through the same four phases, which is hematoma in the first week. Then you have your fibrocartilage. So your cartilage model kind of forming the fracture, stabilizing it. Then by the third week, you start to have callus formation into cartilage. And then finally, long-term remodeling. The issue is the flat bones tend to heal more by intramembranous ossification versus what's called endochondral. So like you, I've actually been doing a little bit more vertebroplasty. My practice changed. I tend to not be filling as much because I'm wondering if we're making them too stiff, you know, and too rigid. When you're doing them then, I mean, what's your endpoint when you're treating these, you know, in terms of cement fill, do you use a volume or do you use, you know, kind of imaging findings? That's something, I mean, endpoint has been a challenge for me since I started doing these, you know, I, I, I will go to great lengths to not reflux cement. I, you know, I'm, I'm so nervous about getting into the epidural space or something like that. And I'm, to this day, I haven't done that. But, you know, I, I see some people out there, you know, you see cases shared on Twitter where people are really aggressive and you see these vertebral bodies that are entirely black. Uh, and it's, I haven't been able to pull the trigger on going to that length. That has been the trend, but I think it's falling away. In the beginning, the fill was important. We used to fill 3cc balloon, you only fill 3cc's. Early studies in the early 2000s showed that if we don't get the bone interdigitating between the compacted bone, you lose your end plate. So you collapse mm -hmm. a little bit, lose your reduction or your height. The trend then was to go to a fuller fill, bigger balloons and maximize the fill. In terms of orthopedics, we always say it's about the reduction. So force equals pressure times area. The more force with the balloon, including the second generation balloons over a larger surface area with more force, got your reduction. But that also compacted the bone so much that we ended up having a very stiff vertebrograms, I call it, where yes, it's this big black cement filled vertebrae. <laughs> and we know that that puts some stress on the adjacent end plates. So I was always feeling a little bit more trying to make sure I filled the clefts and the crevices without overfilling, yeah. but it's tough to do because it's all patient variables. So I've actually gone to a little bit less, trying to get a not as okay. expanded balloon, get my reduction, but don't overfill. I do like to see it, you know, enter that cleft if it's a, you know, kind of horizontal fracture plane, if I can get it. But 
Tom, how do you gauge your reduction? You know, by x-ray, and I do all my reductions on a Jackson table. As a surgeon, I do them in the okay. operating room. It's just easier for me. Yeah. With general anesthesia? Most of the time, yeah. I probably do okay. 90% general, 10% conscious mm-hmm. sedation. Because again, it's about the reduction. Patients get fidgety. You know, they're not moving around if I can do it. And I think I can do a better job, especially if I'm doing unipedicular, not irritating the soft tissues as much. Yeah. So that's how I do it. Really get them lordotic, trying to create that reduction moment and then expand my balloon and see what happens. That's interesting. So you really, you try to, how do you get them more lordotic? The Jackson table is a, what's called a four poster. They have a chest pad Mm -hmm. that sits right on the chest and they sit on the iliac crest and the pelvis. And then the whole entire thoracolumbar and lumbar spine is free. So they're very lordotic, extension-based. And it's amazing the reduction you get just from that. Really? Yes. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's new to me, Tom. Okay. It's harder to do when the patient's under a conscious sedation because you're trying yeah. to force the patient up, extend the patient, and they're hurting. So to me, that's one of the reasons, even with my conscious sedation, our goal is, as example, you give them some sedation, you give them a little diprovan, little fentanyl. And if we're doing a conscious sedation, they're always up and sitting in a bed, right? And they, as you lower yeah. the stretcher back extending, if they don't have pain, then we can get them flat and lay them on the table. So they have to be able to completely extend flat from that sitting posture in order to, to do a conscious sedation. I also think about how I would want to have this done. You know, I, I frankly, you know, when I'm doing this, I use a mallet and that is a, a really jarring thing for a patient who's not entirely out is feeling that mallet. I mean, it, it's not necessarily the pain, but I mean, it feeling and hearing that mallet for a patient who's not like completely out, if they do remember something, to me, it seems like they remember that. And I, I have really, you know, I, used, I started doing these with conscious sedation and I have really gradually gone farther toward, you know, general anesthesia and the vast majority when I can. I agree. That's, you know, patients hate that sound of the mallet. They hate that banging in the back, that pressure yeah. feeling. And I tell the patient, you know, I'm poking around your nerves and spinal cord. I don't want you moving and I wouldn't want it that no. way. And most of them agree. Oh, absolutely. I want to be knocked out completely. At all. I mean, Tom, if, if you're doing my, my kyphoplasty in the future, I'm, I'm going to demand general anesthesia. And so I, <laughs> that, that's kind of what I, I tell most of these patients. If I'm getting one, I'm, I'm going to want anesthesia. And, and it's not always, uh, you know, and it's not always an option, but when I can, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, completely agree. And same here. I tell them I would have it done, be back working the next day. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's one of the great things about this procedure. Generally, you can have them doing the majority of their activities within a couple of days or so if, if you get a good clinical result. Tom, does your approach to doing these from a technical standpoint change, you know, the, the higher you go up uh, in the vertebral column? You know, it all does, but it's based on anatomy. I tell the patient, and when I teach the residents, they always have the typical training, oh, extra pedicular approach, you know, parapedicular approach up above T9 or 10. And you get up to T2, T3, T4. They're huge pedicles, long, wide, half the body. So it's really a transpedicular approach. It's just a very small body and you've got to be careful. So every patient is dependent on the fracture pattern. I really look at it, gauge my angle. Can I do it as unipedicular? Or is this truly one that needs a reduction? Because it's at that thoracolumbar junction where you really want to get that sagittal alignment. Do you ever, you know, because you're in the operating room, I mean, do something kind of a hybrid approach where, you know, you make a larger incision and, and actually visualize the vertebral body? No, no. Okay. No. 
I, I, unless I'm doing an open decompression, there are those patients yeah. that have the fracture. They're on top of a stenotic segment, say a spondylolisthesis at L4 or 5, and they need a reduction. So those I will do kind of an open hybrid. Tom, can you walk me through basically your follow-up for these patients? You know, how do you assess your, your outcome and when you see them again and, and, and when you have circumstances where there's more to do? Yep. Standard lecture to the patient pre-op is we fix the fracture. You should be 50 to 70% better right away. Your sharp mm -hmm. transitional mechanical pain, that pain getting up, getting down, moving should be gone. I see him back at two weeks. I tell him to be careful bending and lifting, not to lift mm -hmm. more than 10 pounds, keep weights close. And when I see him back, first thing I ask him is, how's your pain? Not a scale, but getting up and down. I make them stand up and show me their pain, point to it. Where's it at? And I ask them what their pain level is. If they're 75, 80% better, I'm not too worried about adjacent level fracture. If they're like, well, yeah, it still hurts. It still hurts here. It's 60, 40% better. They have an adjacent level fracture. So I then get standing upright x-ray right there in the office. And almost always you see that adjacent level fracture. Man, no kidding. Yep. Uh, and so where do you go from there? Well, then I talked to him about, is this something we should fix? Is it because we made it too stiff? Did they have a fracture? Say they only had a CT scan that didn't show the fracture. Yeah. Or are they willing to go through, quote, medical augmentation, calcium, vitamin D, you know, brace possibly, give them a couple weeks, see them back in two weeks, get another upright x-ray. If they show a fracture, then we talk about surgery, but I give them the option of going back and doing an adjacent segmentation. And so when you say surgery, are you talking about a fusion or are you talking about doing another vertebral augmentation? Another augmentation. Yeah. Or possibly a vertebroplasty, especially if that inferior end plate is starting to break. I don't want to make it stiff because I have seen same horribly osteoporotic patient who as a side, I always try to get a DEXA scan before their procedure. So I okay. know what I'm dealing with, but. If they have terrible primary osteoporosis, I'll then recommend like a vertebroplasty instead, because I think it's less stiff. Okay. Tom, what else am I missing that's, you know, important to talk about regarding this procedure? Well, one of the things that I have been working with lately has been the Kyphon Assist. Again, help in reduction. You know, I mean, I think as much information as we have, as much literature is out there, we really don't know how much cement do we really need? And in what patient, you know, we know if you get kind of a blocky chop squared off dense bone, you tend to have an adjacent increasing fracture. If you kind of get that spongy kind of describe, you know, flow in vertebroplasty pattern, they tend not to be as stiff and sore, you know, and then I think it's a matter of what do we do? So for me, the reduction has been better with the Kyphon assist. And the good point is I can get that flow into the other parts of the vertebrae as a vertebroplasty by rotating my Kyphon assist or scoop cannula, as I call it, to get the other areas. So I can control the flow into the vertebrae. Tom, for the listeners, what is the Kyphon assist? So Kyphon assist is basically a scooped cutout cannula, same as your size two or size three cannula. And it acts as a ramp. So the balloon gets directed to a certain area. It helps increase height reduction and it controls your flow of the cement. Do you still do a single inflation when you're using the Kyphon assist or will you ever, you know, direct it to, you know, the top or the middle or bottom, you know, inflate more than once? 
both. If I'm too lateral with my needle catheter, I can use the kyphon assist or scoop to push it more medial. If I'm too low, I can push it high. And sometimes I will bail out and go to the kyphon assist because it makes my fill better. So e each of those are great options and great, you know, tools that I think people need to know about in doing vertebral augmentation. I'll ask my rep this week. <laughs> well, Tom, thank you. We really appreciate having you on here and, and for sharing your expertise and perspective. This has been extremely valuable for me to, to really hear how you look at this as, as a spine surgeon, as a bone specialist, which frankly is, is a bit different from how I do. And, uh, you know, I, I think we can really all get a lot from this. But, so again, thank you for sharing your time with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. Mm -hmm.